If you brought a copy of God's Word with you, I would invite you to find Psalm 100, Psalm 139, Psalm 139. That was good theology we were singing, if you didn't notice, really good theology. I had a theology professor that had us memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism's uh, version of a definition for God, asking the question, uh, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And in his being, wisdom and power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Charles Hodge, the eminent theologian, said that's probably the best short definition he's ever, ever heard of God. We suggested at the beginning of this series which we have titled The Quest for an Unshakable Faith, which we are saying will be the case when we have a good biblical theological understanding of God and his ways. We suggested, we quoted from Tozer who said that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a significant statement. Because it's true. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, and it's the most important thing about me. David Wells, in his book, God in the Whirlwind, is writing about the culture in which we live. And he writes, the external God has now disappeared and has been replaced by the internal God. Transcendence, which I'll come back to you with that word in a moment, has been swallowed up by imminence. God is to be found only within self. And once that happened, the boundary between right and wrong, at least as we had thought about these things, went down like a row of falling skittles, unquote. I share that quote with you from David Wells because Dr. Wells understands What's at stake when we think badly about God? And I can tell you, as a pastor now for nearly 30 years, I have, I have spent time with seasoned believers, individuals who've known God for years and have bad theology when it comes to God. Because you don't think biblically. You think in accordance with the culture that's around you. And then it all becomes about you. It all becomes about your personal comfort, your personal happiness, your personal solitude, your, your, your. This is the idolatry of the whole thing. And this is what Tozer meant when Tozer said, Tozer said the, quote, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Let me give that to you again. The essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Now, on the other hand, when our thinking is accurate and our understanding is clear, uh, and you actually think biblically, you actually believe biblical truths and act upon them in faith, Here's the deal. If that's the case with you, you will fear God. And I would suggest to you that's a very good thing to do. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge, the writer of Proverbs has told us, and the writer of the Psalms. We need to fear God. And you fear God when you have a big, big picture of him and who he is. You understand, at least to some degree, his greatness, and your thinking becomes a little more clearer. 
theologians uh, talk about God's attributes as being both communicable and incommunicable. Let me explain that. It's, it, you don't need to remember those words except to understand the concept behind them. A communicable attribute of God is an attribute of God that he gives to us. He communicates them to us so that he expects what he has in his attribute to be in your life as well. So, for instance, God is love, and he expects you to be loving, both to God and to one another, right? So he communicates that attribute to us. God is merciful, and he, he loves to show mercy toward us in the cross, ultimately, but that is a communicable attribute. He expects you to be merciful and me to be merciful. And justice, another, you know, we could go through several communicable attributes of God. And then there are the incommunicable attributes of God. Those are the ones that he does not communicate to you. We learn about them. It's essential that we understand them so that we can get a grasp of how great our God is. They are incommunicable attributes. They are attributes he does not share with us. In Psalm 139, there are three incommunicable attributes that come out. Attributes that God does not share with us. And they are in this order. The omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God. Omni means all. Omniscience, all-knowing. Omnipresent, everywhere, at, simultaneously, at the same time and omnipotent, all-powerful. Those are not communicable attributes. We don't get those. But it's essential that we understand them if we're going to get a big picture of God and understand life and not become idolatrous and making it all about ourselves, as so many churches are doing today. And some, and many of them actually unwittingly. They don't mean to be that way. They just are. And that's because they have such bad theology coming out of their pulpit or such weak theologies. A lot of cases, it's not what they say, it's what they don't say. Everything is just so surface-like. Well, let's just go through these. In the first six verses, the first attribute, this incommunicable attribute, is God is great in his omniscience, that is, in his knowledge of us. And so let's look at these familiar verses to many, but they're grandiose verses, are they not? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Did you know that about God? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hemmed me in, behind, before, your hands upon me. And he says, he ends up when he, this is the omniscience of God. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain unto it. Blows me away. Now, how can God have this kind of interest, much less time to take an interest in me or in you? Now, here comes a word that you should be accustomed to. Maybe not so much the use of the word, but the, certainly the concept or the understanding of the word. It is the word, here it is, transcendence. God is transcendent. Now, we do use this word. And many of you have used it in your own vernacular. We say that Michael Jordan transcends basketball uh, or other basketball players. That is, he's above. 
he's apart from. He's in a category of one. Which, by the way, is what the word transcendence means. It means to be independent of. It means to be above, apart from. That's the idea in the word transcendent. It's a very important word to get when it comes to God. God exists both above and independent of his creation. He is nevertheless imminent. That's the, that's the contrast word means close. And we'll see that as we come to the communion table in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not us. He's not creation itself. We're not pantheists. We don't believe God is in everything, but he is near everything and yet distinct from everything. He is transcendent. Last week, Chuck DeClean preached on Isaiah 6, and you see Isaiah. Remember, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, he's a young prophet. I saw the Lord high and lifted up his train, filled the temple. I see these angels. They're singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are filled with his glory. And Isaiah says, oh, I'd really like to snuggle up to him. Is that what he says? No, he says, I'm, I'm damned. I'm a man of unclean lips. I need somebody to help me to bring me close to this great transcendent God. Here's how the psalmist put it in another place. He said, the Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. That is transcendence. You say, well, okay, that's pretty cool. What's that got to do with me? Everything. You see, because God transcends his creation, he is, listen to this, he is not subject to creation's limitations. Let me say that to you again. Because God is transcendent to his creation, he, God, is not subject to the limitations of his creation, like matter and time. Virtually every miracle Jesus ever did was in violation of the laws of nature, were they not? The only reason he can do that is because he's God, and he transcends the laws he created. You say, wait a minute, how can a battle take place? And how does God stop the sun and the moon stop it or the, the earth stop its rotation? Yeah, that's not even possible. That's right. That's what a miracle is. Something that's impossible, but it happens anyway. Because God transcends his creation, he's not subject to the limitations of that creation. So that means for you personally, and I'll come back to this, but let's say you know, you, you know that Paul's injunction in Philippians 4 is don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Well, everything means everything. And you might be thinking, that, I mean, God, I mean, pray about everything? Transcendence says that that's not a problem for God, for you to bring everything to him. But as I said, I'll come back to it. Because the main teaching of this section is God's overarching intrinsic knowledge of everything in your life. 
you know, every, there's not a word in my tongue, but Lord, you know it all together. You, you're, you're in front of me, you're behind me, you're on top of me. You know my thoughts, are for, you know my thoughts before I even get them. Is it any wonder that he said, I'm just blown away by all of this. So here is a, a, a woman, Jesus meets in Samaria. You know the story, the woman at the well. And he converses with her and he says, uh, go get your husband. <laughs> I don't have a husband. He says, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. <sighs> now here's a woman. Think about it. She is so worn out in life that she's been married five times and she's so given up on the institution of marriage and all that it was meant to be in any culture that she's given up on it. Now she's just shacking up with the guy. She is, she is just at the bottom of her tether, so to speak. And here is Jesus not just saying, I know you're living with the guy, but I know every detail about every single one of those previous marriages. I know it all. And here's the thing that makes this so beautiful. What is he doing but reaching out to her? What is he doing but speaking into her life? And is it any wonder, interestingly, we probably don't have that entire conversation. It's probably abbreviated in John 4. But what does the woman say to the, to the people in town when she goes to them? She says, come see the man who told me everything about me. Have you ever read that? Why? Because Jesus is God, and God is omniscient, and yet reaching out to her, just like he does to you. Some of you are thinking right now that, that somehow what you're doing is secret. It is not secret. In fact, not only is what you're doing not being ignored, every detail is being recorded. And Jesus said, every idle word that men shall speak, they'll give an account of in the day of judgment. So here's something I want you to think about as we move into the next thought. God's intimate knowledge of you should make you shudder, but it doesn't necessarily make you, it shouldn't make you run. You don't have to run from it. Shudder, yes. Fear God, yes. But don't run from him. Run to him. The same God who saw everything in that woman at the well's life, and then some. Anybody here been married five times? Please don't raise your hand. I'm kidding. I mean, we'd love you. Just, I mean, but that's, that's amazing. And yet here he is reaching out to this woman just like he wants to reach out to you. You should shudder at the knowledge of God in your life. But you don't have to run from it. Here's the second thing. God is great in his omnipresence is everywhereness. Look at verses 7 and following. Where shall I go from your spirit? That would be his Holy Spirit. Where shall I flee from your presence? In fact, the word presence, the Hebrew word for face. Where can I run from your face? If I ascend into heaven, well, you're there, of course, you're in heaven. If I make my bed in Hell or Sheol or the netherworld or the, the realm of the dead, you're there. Oh, by the way, Satan is not the God of hell. God is the God of hell. If I make my bed in the netherworld, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell under the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand's going to hold me, he says. It's going to lead me. Your right hand's going to hold me. By the way, it's a figure of speech. The wings of the morning would be the rays of the sun. The sun rises in the east. It would have shot straight across the Mediterranean Sea. So David is looking out the Mediterranean Sea. If I could take... If I could ride the the rays of the sun at 186,000 miles a second, you're there. Not because God has to chase after you at 186,000 miles a second, but because he's God. And as God, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You can't shake him. You're not going to get away from him. That's what David is saying. Well, he says, well, let's go a little bit further. I'll say the darkness That'll cover me. The light will be like night. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So here you have David talking about God as being omnipresent. In verse 10, he uses the word hold You see that word there where he says, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand will hold me. That's The Hebrew word means to arrest. It means to be caught. It means to be seized. Have you ever been arrested? Anybody here ever been arrested? I have. Well, sort of. Thanks for the humble testimony, dude. I wasn't old enough to be thrown into jail at the time. I'd sold some candy bars and a few other things. I still remember walking out of the store and having this awful feeling coming over me just as I was getting grabbed in the arm. I look back, and this guy was a lot bigger than me. I mean, assume that. I'm like 12 years old. He says, come with me. And as we walked into the store, he looks up the window, that, that mirrored window. He says, you see that window? And I'm looking up and going, why didn't I ever look up? And I was thinking... That's, that's a problem some of you are having. You just don't look up. You don't consider the omnipresence of God. You're like Moses who killed the Egyptian first looking this way. He looks that way. He never looks up. That's half our problem. Is it, I'll take the wings of the morning. I'll go to the other most parts of the sea. I can't get away from you. That's exactly, by the way, what Jonah did. Remember? The, you know, the wings of the morning for him was a ship sailing to Joppa. But what happened? What did he experience while at the sea? He experienced the omnipresence of God. Remember that? The lots are thrown. It falls on him. It's been years since I shared this, so I think it's safe to share it again. I was, when I was a young pastor, very young in the ministry, my, my, my oldest boy was three years old, not old enough to be in vacation Bible school, but we only had like 15 kids in it, so why not throw another one in? He says, hey, he says, uh, you, you, can I sing up there? I said, yeah, you can sing, but you need to be a good boy. Okay, Dad. He's three years old. After about two songs, he's tired of singing up there, so he starts playing Army Man up on the platform. And that was, oh, that just angered me. In fact, he crawls all the way down the steps and people are laughing. He sees him laughing. He crawls all the way back up, then crawls back down again. And I'm over here spitting nails. So as soon as that little thing was done with these kids singing, I took him by the hand. I marched him outside in the little country church, shut the door. It was just him and me in the corn. And I just laid into him. I told him how naughty he had been. I began to discipline him right there on the spot. And I looked up and I saw one of the deacons running through the foyer, waving his hands. 
And I, I opened the door. I said, what do you need? He goes, Pastor, your microphone is on. Every single word I was saying to him was coming through the intercom. Those people were busting the gut in there. I'm, I'm making my way back. To, I make my way to church that day. I say to my wife, you know, I, I, really, I need something to really kind of cinch things up. And I had the boy, did I have something to cinch things up with? And I went in there and I took my medicine. And then I said, look, everything you say, everything you do, every thought you have is coming through heaven's intercom. It's open to God, who is everywhere. He sees everything, knows everything for sure. Listen, God's ever presence is intended to comfort you, not haunt you. Now, if it's necessary, it'll haunt you. But that was never the intention. Jesus said, I'm with you always. Even at the end of the age, I was intended to comfort you, not haunt you. Now, here's the third incommunicable attribute here. It's certainly alluded to, at least, and it's the omnipotence of God. God is great in his omnipotence. Omni, all, potent, powerful. We could bring in a plethora of scripture for this, but just two will suffice. Jeremiah, to Jeremiah, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? Of course not. Gabriel says to this woman who is reeling over the fact he's going to have a child out of any relationship with a man, this virgin conception is going to take place. And Gabriel, after telling her how God is going to do it by his Holy Spirit and the implantation there and how this holy thing born to her will be called the Son of God, he says... For nothing is impossible with God. The only question is, do you really believe that? And really, do you believe that? Because I'm thinking, when I see some of the behavior of some people who name the name of Jesus, all I can conclude is, you don't believe that. You don't believe that God can do anything. Some of you are single individuals, and you... You know, you, you become infatuated with somebody else. You start dating people that don't know Jesus. You say, well, God's not big enough to bring a Christian into my life. Really? If that's your case, you have a bad theology. And secondly, you need to realize what you're doing. You're mocking God, and God is not mocked. Some of you have marriages that have failed. And as many of you know, this has been the biggest heartache for us in a church that's growing we're planting our fourth church in nine years. Our church is averaging over 900 people, upwards to 1,000 people every Sunday. But there are people that are really struggling in their marriages. And we've, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of this is just bad theology. People who, who refuse to believe God to do great things. And when we believe that God will do and can do, he's omnipotent. There's nothing impossible for him. Then he starts to do amazing things. 
Eight years ago, at our men's stake and corn feed, I introduced to you my brother Steve, who had just come to trust Jesus as his Savior. He lived such a horrible life. I would put that marriage and the woes of the marriage between him and my sister-in-law against any disgustingly sinful situation I have ever dealt with in 30 years of pastoring, and I've dealt with some really bad stuff. He lived with the same, he didn't live with her, he had a clandestine second life going with another woman for a decade. A decade. No one in their right mind would have faulted my sister-in-law for leaving him, divorcing him, and walking away from him. And for eight years, they were separated. For eight years, they were alienated. And for most of those eight years, they rarely communicated, only when absolutely necessary. Even though he made sort of a veiled attempt to, to, a failed attempt to reconcile, and she kind of kicked it around. But a series of circumstances that took place about a year ago, my sister-in-law began to really grow in her faith, began to really grow in her theology. And on the other side of the fence, my brother was growing in his theology and his understanding of God. And he was walking a very, very humble road for, the, for some seven years. And God brought him to new levels of repentance. And he brought her to new levels of repentance in the areas of bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. And through a circumstance that occurred about a year ago that I was a small part of, he went back down to Nashville, separated by several states. He humbled himself. She humbled herself. They were instantly reconciled. Instantly reconciled. Because of the level of humility she had been praying for the, the couple of years that God would do something extraordinary. And last Saturday morning, it was my joy to introduce to the entire family and a few friends for the, for the second time, Mr. and Mrs. Steve Nimmers. Eight years alienated. Their 10-year-old Grandson, after hearing from all these testimonies, by the way, the whole family had been disintegrated as a result. They are all back together. And the 10-year-old, very articulately, looked at everyone and said, I know everyone's real happy about Mimi and Papa being together again, but this is the first time I've ever seen them together. And throughout that room, there was the very distinct impression that with God, nothing is impossible. The verses here in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18, allude to the omnipotence of God. And it takes us all the way into the earliest part of our lives, indeed, conception and beyond. He says in verse 13, you form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, that is my skeletal structure, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Intricately woven, the ESV puts it. Great translation. It 
The Hebrew means to be embroidered. It's carrying the idea of what happens after the zygote stage and then just all of this intricate design, this fearful and wonderful design of God from the very moment. What's happening there during the gestation period? He's describing this, even though this is like 900 B.C. Your eyes saw my substance, verse 16, my unformed substance. In your book, they're written, every one of them, the days were formed for me when as yet there were none. There were none of them. The poet Carl Sandburg once said, a baby is God's opinion that the world should go on. <laughs> Another writer put it like this. He said, when we, content, when we contemplate human birth, our first response ought to be reverence. The God of the galaxies is the God who concern, is concerned about the color of the baby's hair, the genetic structure of a yet unborn child. We ought to bow and reverence before God and worship him because each individual child is a part of his handiwork. We don't know why some children are born handicapped or exceptional in some areas, but God does, unquote. That's true. Moses, to God, Moses said in Exodus chapter 4, he said, who has made the mouth? The mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind. Is it not I, says the Lord? In other words, even with the debilitating results of sin, which takes us right down to our DNA, that's why we have children that are born with defects and problems in life itself. Even in spite of all that, God still reigns in the life of the development of your child. He's omnipotent. He's creating this child for his image. And when he says unformed substance here, that's exactly what it means. It's referring to the zygote or embryonic stage in gestation. And notice how he refers to it. He says, I, my, I, me. These are personal pronouns. This is not abstract protoplasmic blob kind of stuff. I hope to be a human someday. But he's referring to it in very personal terms. Here's an obscure text. When men strive together, Moses writes, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, if there is harm, then they shall pay life for life. Have you ever read that? In the case of the law, even when abortion was not intentional and the assaulted woman did not die, if the unborn child is killed in the assault, the assailant must pay with his very life. That's what that verse is saying. You talk about God putting value on a life. And why is that? Because you are destroying or being a part of the destruction of one of God's own precious creations formed in his own image. That's why. And speaking of precious, now think about this God, this omnipotent God who can do anything. Look at verse 17. After all of this, he's considered this this. Knowledge of God, the fact that he's everywhere, I can't shake him. 
and that he can do anything. David writes, look what he says. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. The word sum is plural. There's a lot of thinking. God is doing a lot of thinking about me. Precious means weighty. It means valuable. And, And they're more than the sand. I remember years ago of having the kids, we read this and I had the kids go out to the sandbox and, and they all were to grab just a little tiny pinch of sand. They brought their little pinch of sand and they brought it up to the uh, coffee table and they put their pinches of sand on there and we tried counting them. We gave up. After hundreds of grains of sand, we gave up. You say, well, this is just hyperbole. This is just, you know, biblical exaggeration. No, it's not. If God is omniscient, he can have these kinds of thoughts towards you and towards me. God thinks about me. God thinks about you. And what is amazing about it is the next line. Look at verse 18. If I should count them the more than the sand, I awake and what? I'm still what? I'm still here. As you contemplate the omnipotence of God, we need to return to that term transcendence. One of the things about God's transcendence is that he transcends time. Remember we said transcendence means that God is not subject to his creation, to the limits of his creation, right? And so if God created time, which he did, that means God lives He transcends time. He lives above the time. You say, okay, well, that's interesting theologically. What does this mean for my life? This is exactly what it means. I wonder how many of you have said, well, I don't really talk to God about these things. It's so trivial. I don't want to bother him. First of all, God, it's not possible to bother God. And secondly, if you think that much less make the statement, then you are betraying your bad theology. Because if good theology understands that God is transcendent, that means he's above time. You can't, you can't exhaust God. This is the reason why you can bring every single triviality to God, as well as the big stuff. He's not bothered by the small things. He doesn't have to let a million other things go just to go take care of you because he resides above time. And he can take care of gazillions of us simultaneously and with the same heart, with the same love, with the same affection and with the same detail as he would in a much more crisis-like situation. This is, this is because God is so omnipotent. He's transcendent. This is, a, this is good news, by the way. This is the reason why Jesus said, look, your father knows when a little bird dies. Don't you think you're more important than little birds? Okay. Yes. God's omnipotence declares not only that nothing is too hard for him, but that nothing is too trivial for him. That makes it very practical, don't you think? I think so too. So look at that. Look at the end of verse 18. Look at it. There's a little word there that that declares God's mercy. It's the word still. When I awake, I'm still with you. Still. With you. Remember what Jeremiah wrote? God's mercies are new, what? Every what? What do you do in the morning? You wake up and you're still with God. 
because he's given you a fresh batch of his mercies, which are new every morning. The very fact that you're here and you're breathing should cause you to be a grateful person. Now, in the light of all of this, David sort of brings it all to a conclusion. In the last two verses, there are prayers. Some of you have memorized it, and you should memorize this passage of Scripture. And there are actually three requests that come in this. And the first one is, search me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Search me. The second one is, try me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And the last one is one we, we try to make a beeline to. Lead me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no problem with that last request, right? I want you leading, God. The word search, the Hebrew word means to mine for ore. Here's a question I have for you. Are you willing to say to God, go digging. Dig in, God. Go as deep as you need to go in my life. Are you willing to say that to him? Because that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. The word try was a word which meant to test metal by fire. And so, by implication, the psalmist is saying, God, dig and put me in the furnace if if necessary to purify me for yourself. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let God put you in the furnace of suffering? So that he can bring forth that which is pleasurable for him in your life? And then lead me. Of course we want his leading. Search me. Try me. Lead me. And when you can get to that, you can say with David, remember at the very beginning David said, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Verse 1, that's cold, hard truth. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. What's, what, David forgot what he said at the beginning? No. But he was welcoming what God was already doing. See, he saw it as a cold, hard fact at the beginning, but at the end, he's, he's welcoming the searching spade of God. So, welcome what God is already doing and walk with your watcher and worship the one who thinks about you all the time even though he's not subject to time. So God is transcendent. He's above, he's separate from his creation, resides above it and its limitations. But God is also imminent. That means he's close, he comes to us. And how did he do that? Well, that's what this is all about. God becoming a man. And the communion elements depict both the perfect life in the bread and the sacrificial death in the juice, blood of Jesus. So here's Jesus. He is the omniscient God. He knows everything about us, everything, as, de- as he demonstrated with the woman at the well, right? 
And yet he comes into time. He comes into space. He comes into our world. He comes into our neighborhood. And he limits himself purposely, even though he's God, it doesn't cease to be God. He purposely limits himself in his knowledge. He even said, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Did you ever read that? And so here's Jesus, the omnipresent God, simultaneously everywhere at the same time. And yet he comes into our time. He comes into our space. He comes into our neighborhood. And he limits himself in that he can't be everywhere at the same time, but only isolated in a little slit called Israel. And so here's Jesus. He is the omnipotent God. Nothing is impossible for him. He comes into our space. He comes into our world. He comes into our time. He comes into our neighborhood. And what does he do? Does he call 12 legions of angels to wipe out his enemies that are ready to hang him on a cross? No. He submits himself to the most unimaginable horrors that men could inflict upon another man. And he dies for us. This is your God. And he is great. Do you know him? Let's pray together. Our Father, help us to catch a glimpse of your greatness and then your love in your Son, Jesus. I pray that this will be a very, very special time of communion and perhaps the first time for some who are or will have that is place their faith in Jesus and I pray for those who haven't that they would today you are great Lord in all of your omnis and then some we do pray Lord that you would help us to be truly be able to say search go ahead and dig try if necessary cause us to hurt and suffer, though we don't want this personally, we recognize it may be the avenue for that which creates vessels of honor and lead us, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.